Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 217, Bignot's Defense of Calvinism, Part 2. Dr. Guillaume Bignot is a French analytic philosopher who works as a computer scientist in the financial industry in New York City. He also serves on the executive committee of Axiom, a society of French-speaking Christian scholars. Today, the second part of our conversation about his new book, Excusing Sinners and Blaming God, a Calvinist assessment of determinism, moral responsibility, and divine involvement in evil. Today, Dr. Bignot will summarize his book in some detail, and then he'll entertain a few objections from yours truly. Dr. Bignot, welcome back to the Trinity's Podcast. Thank you, Dale. It's a pleasure to be back. As we discussed last week, your book is really tightly focused on defending Calvinism against charges that it makes us not responsible for our sins and that it makes God be morally blameworthy. And the meat of the book, which is pretty much the whole thing, is a bunch of very detailed arguments where you interact with recent analytic philosophy, both by Calvinists and by people who are objecting to Calvinists, people like William Hasker and William Lane Craig. And I thought we'd do a kind of a lightning round overview where I will say a chapter title and you will say basically what's going on in that chapter and try to keep it down to, I don't know, two minutes or something like that. But I'm not going to have a timer and buzz you. But uh, this, I think, if we can go through it, will give people a good idea of the flow of the book and sort of what some of these issues are without our punishing them with all the details of, you know, 14-step arguments or whatever. Although a lot of your arguments are three steps, which I like, you know. I don't want to give the impression that there's you know, detailed nonsense or, or irrelevant, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a pin kind of stuff. I don't think any of it is. I think it's all, it's all very interesting. And a lot of it has to do with work by compatibilists and libertarians in the last 40 or 50 years, where they've both really gotten to work and gotten very serious about what they're saying and what they're not saying. So Dr. Bignot, chapter one is called Free Will, Pets and Puppets. Yes, so the part about free will, I think, is my attempt to explain that the phrase in itself is not uh, necessarily libertarian. So the use of free will, as I explained last time, is simply to say that we satisfy the control condition for moral responsibility. So I try to avoid many attempts by libertarians to say, well, if Calvinism is true, then we don't have free will. And obviously, if we don't have free will, we're not morally responsible. So this is where I clarify and I try to set a debate that's at least acknowledged at the beginning on the compatibility question, and then we can assess, okay, does determinism exclude moral responsibility and free will? But the phrase free will is innocent in itself. The, the issue of pets and puppets, uh, this is where I start into, and some of the next chapters uh, bear that uh, strategy. I start by assessing a number of arguments against compatibilism that say that for human beings to be determined, it's analogous to some other thing that we know excludes moral responsibility. 
So that's a common strategy for a number of those arguments in the first few chapters, where the libertarian will say, if we're determined, then we are just like fill in the blank. And so here they might say we're just like pets or puppets. There's lots of colorful language in anti-Calvinist literature. They're saying that we're like puppets, we're marionettes, we're robots. All of those metaphors are really pressing an argument that is by analogy. And they're saying if determinism is true, then human beings are just like that. Therefore, they cannot be morally responsible. Let me interject here. This is one thing I like about the book a lot. Whenever somebody makes an argument using an analogy or metaphor, you pop right up and say, well, slow down there, partner. <laughs> how, <laughs> how can that analogy or metaphor basically be turned into cash money of a literal statement? We're not going to just accept the kind of impressionistic idea. I want the actual argument. And so, yeah, then it gets harder, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. So pets and puppets is kind of funny and not too hard to point out because, uh, as you said, uh, analogies are interesting, but I, I try to flesh them out into an actual argument. I try to take the analogies that are put forward and try to interpret it in the strongest possible way as a deductive argument against my view. And I try to assess what is this objection supposed to convince me of? It's convincing me that there's a relevant similarity between determinism and uh, being a pet or being a puppet. And so I discuss what that uh, relevant similarity might be. And then I try to offer uh, rebutting defeaters so that in the end, I show that determinism is disanalogous to pets and puppets, or at least more modestly, I show that it hasn't been proven to be analogous to pets and puppets. Okay, chapter two is called the coercion arguments. So here it's a very similar sort of claim that you find in the literature against Calvinism. It's the idea that uh, God, if determinism is true, is forcing us to choose how we choose. He's coercing us. And so coercion, we know in human affairs, remove moral responsibility. So the claim goes, if God coerces us, if he forces us to choose the way we choose, then it would exclude our moral responsibility. And here I take the same sort of study that I took with pets and puppets. I interpret this as an argument from analogy, which claims that there must be some relevant similarity between determinism and coercion. And I try to unpack what that relevant similarity is alleged to be. I show that there is, in fact, no relevant analogy. There's no relevantly similar feature between determinism and coercion, and therefore there's no good argument against compatibilism based on coercion. It's a little bit difficult here because one has to first try to analyze what coercion itself is, mm -hmm. and that's not entirely uncontroversial. So there's a little bit of discussion of what that even is, and then tr I try to see if, based upon that, there's a good argument against compatibilism, and I conclude, uh, shockingly, that there isn't. Chapter three is called the manipulation argument. The manipulation question is similar to coercion in the way that the argument is phrased. It's simply the claim that we have this human phenomenon called manipulation that uh, in some circumstances can remove more responsibility. And here I'm thinking mostly of the strongest kinds of manipulation. For example, a mad scientist who's uh, putting electrodes on our brain to make us do something or uh, some sort of hypnotist or some love potion, all of those ways of possibly manipulating someone into doing something. Mm -hmm. uh, we would be saying that those things exclude more responsibility. 
And here the claim against Calvinism is that determinism is like that on some uh, level. And so I try to analyze exactly what is the allegedly similar feature of determinism and manipulation. And I try to show that there is no relevant similarity between the two. In that chapter, I also interact with very specific formulation of the manipulation argument because there are some famous arguments uh, on offer in the literature. You have uh, the four-case argument by Dirk Periboom. There's the zygote argument by Al Mill. And so I, I try to take their own formulation of the manipulation argument. And I think that the criterions that I offer successfully distinguish between cases where we know there's manipulation and that excludes moral responsibility and the normal case where God determines the outcome of a human being, where I maintain that he is morally responsible. So that's the, my treatment of the manipulation question. Chapter four is called the mental illness argument. Again, here we have a claim by analogy. This is the claim that mental illness is, uh, in some cases, excluding moral responsibility. We're inclined to say that some people suffer from, from a kind of mental illness that is sufficient to exclude their moral responsibility, at least in some situations. I uh, inspect whether or not the case of a mentally ill person who is excluded from moral responsibility is analogous to a human being who is determined by God to choose how he chooses. There's not all that many folks in the literature actually offering that charge, but although there are a couple of voices that press this, but it seemed to me to be a good candidate for an argument. So since I was in the business of uh, surveying all of the possible arguments by analogy, I treated this one. So once again, I simply try to analyze what is supposed to be similar between determinism and mental illness, and do we have a solid argument against compatibilism based upon that. Obviously, I conclude that there isn't one, but I, I analyze a little bit the concept of mental illness in the process and try to offer some criteria to coherently distinguish between the normal case of God determining a human being versus a mentally ill person who's doing things without controlling and is not morally responsible for those. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Bignot continues his summary of the book's arguments, diving into some deep philosophical literature about free will. Chapter 5 is called The Consequence Argument and the Principle of Alternate Possibilities. Yeah, so these are two very substantial arguments that are offered against the compatibilist position. Obviously, in a short format interview like this, I can't really enter into the meat of how I go about responding to them. But the consequence argument is a famous argument by Peter Van Inwagen, who basically says that uh, if determinism is true, then all of our choices are just the consequences of things that happened before we were even born. So the state of the universe before we even showed up on the scene contained in itself already all the ingredients for us to be determined to do what we do. And Van Inwagen 
says, well, you can't be blamed for some things that you have no control over uh, because that was happening before you were born. And then you also have no control over the fact that those things entail the outcome of your choices. And therefore, you shouldn't be um, praised or blamed. So you, you don't really control the outcome of your own choices. And therefore, you don't have free will. Let's say, in a nutshell, the consequence argument is saying you're not blameworthy for the consequences of things that happened before you were born. That uh, argument, it turns out, and I think that's somewhat recognized by philosopher, well, actually is dependent upon a deeper principle, which is the infamous principle of alternate possibility, namely the claim that in order for a human being to be morally responsible, he needs to have an ability to do otherwise than what he actually did. So I perform my action, and if I am to be morally responsible, then I should have been able to do otherwise than I did. That's the broad formulation of the principle of alternate possibility. And in the final analysis, the consequence argument presupposes the pr principle of alternate possibility. So I treat both of them in that chapter. There are lots of things that I say in response to those. Uh, I don't think I can get into details there. But the big idea that I try to hammer in is that there's one huge equivocation right in the center of the debate on what it means to have the ability to do otherwise. There is a categorical sense of ability and a conditional sense of ability. I'm not the only one who recognizes those two senses, obviously, but I've identified many places in the arguments where it seems to me the equivocation is making the argument unsound. And so the categorical sense of ability to do otherwise is simply saying that when I choose what I do, I could have done otherwise, all things about me being just the way they were at the moment of choice. So we hold all of those things, all the things that are supposed to influence my choice at the moment of decision, we hold the, all of them in place and then I have a categorical ability to still do something else. And that categorical sense of ability, I think, is fairly evident, is requiring indeterminism. Because if I am determined to do what I do by my own personal inner state of affairs, my cons the various circumstances in which I find myself, and the activity of God on my heart, all the influencing factors, if they collectively determine what I do, then I don't have a categorical ability to do otherwise. The only thing that I categorically can do is the one thing that God has determined that I will do. And so there are those two senses of ability. One is the categorical sense, and the other one is conditional. Mm -hmm. And that conditional sense of ability that I explain is a much more modest sense of ability. It's the ability to do otherwise, provided that I would have wanted to do otherwise. So here, we're not keeping all the things exactly as they were in place at the moment of choice. We are allowing my desires to be different. And then we're asking the question, well, if I had wanted to, could I have done otherwise? Would it have been something else than my desires preventing me from doing it? So you can imagine uh, like handcuffs uh, in my back uh, while we're taking a vote where I have to raise my hand. This is a place where I would say, well, I didn't raise my hand, but even if I wanted to, conditionally, counterfactually, even if I wanted to, I couldn't have raised my hand. And so that sense of conditional ability to do otherwise, I show is actually compatible with determinism. So it's possible for somebody to have that conditional ability to do otherwise while being determined. 
Now, there's lots of criticism of the conditional ability to do otherwise, and uh, I don't need to get into this uh, in a short format. But once I've explained that equivocation, we find in many places that people are banking on the fact that the conditional ability to do otherwise is necessary for moral responsibility. And I affirm that myself. It is necessary to have that kind of conditional ability. But then banking on the fact that this is very true and very strongly felt, they kind of slip to affirming that we therefore need a categorical sense of ability. And I don't think that that follows. So that's the big claim I make in this chapter. And I obviously decline it in different ways I interact with the arguments. But that's the big idea. The consequence argument presupposes the principle of alternate possibilities. And then the principle of alternate possibilities, I show really plays off of this equivocation on the sense of ability. And then there's lots of criticism of the conditional sense of ability. Uh, people say that it's begging the question. People say that it's not necessary. People say that it's not sufficient. So I deal with those but uh, to defend my ground. But the big idea is this. Two senses of ability. One is necessary for moral responsibility, but compatible with determinism. And the other one is incompatible with determinism, but not necessary for moral responsibility. Chapter six, the main title is Beyond Mere Skepticism. And there's some original arguments in here. So how would you summarize chapter six? Here I uh, take, I play off of the uh, principle of alternate possibility understood in that categorical sense that is pressed by the libertarian. And I try to now go on the offensive and actually offer arguments for why that principle of alternate possibilities understood in this categorical sense of ability is actually false. So in the previous chapter, I was trying to show that it's not proven. And in this chapter, I actually go on the offensive and try to offer arguments to show that it's false. And I defend two different arguments. The impetus for those arguments is not original to my work. Uh, one of them, I've found the impetus in Martin Luther, and the other one is in Jonathan Edwards. But I think that those arguments can be used here to argue against the principle of alternate possibilities understood with this categorical sense of ability. The argument by Martin Luther is simply saying that if the categorical sense of ability to do otherwise is necessary for moral responsibility, then he says that makes you a Pelagian is identifying that inference in the writings of uh, Erasmus. And he's saying if the inference by Erasmus stands good, then the Pelagians have won the day. And the reason he says that, he's saying, well, if I need to be able to do otherwise in order to blame for something I've done, then you can apply that to the entirety of my life and say that I either have the ability to live a sinless life, and that's Pelagianism, or I don't have the ability to live a sinless life, and therefore I should not be blamed for my failure to live a sinless life, and that leads you to universalism. So it's kind of a dilemma a form of argument that says if you affirm the categorical ability to do otherwise as a necessity for moral responsibility, you end up either in Pelagianism or in universalism. That's the basic argument. Obviously, there's lots of responses and I interact with them, but that's the, the argument I offer here against the principle of alternate possibility. And the other one is that I took uh, more from Jonathan Edwards is to uh, apply the principle of alternate possibilities to God and God being impeccable and yet worthy of praise provides a counterexample to this principle. So Jonathan Edwards is simply saying this, look, Armenians are saying you need to be able to do otherwise in order to be morally responsible, but God cannot sin. 
he is unable, it's, it's categorically impossible for God to do something that's unrighteous, and yet he's praiseworthy for the fact that he's only righteous. So he's saying, here's a bona fide counterexample, and it only takes one in order to refute the principle. So that serves as a counterargument against the principle of alternate possibilities, understood categorically, once again, because you can still say about God that he could do something wrong if only he wanted to. So we have here a counterexample to the principle of alternate possibility mm -hmm. in that God is both unable to sin and yet he's praiseworthy for the fact that he doesn't sin. We could probably do two podcasts on just that chapter. I mean, there's a lot of interesting and challenging material there for even for someone who's not a Calvinist. There's arguments there like, well, you should be because this idea of libertarian free will that you put your trust in is, is rotten at its foundations is kind of where you're going with it. Okay, so you wrap up part one, which is called Calvinism and Moral Responsibility with a chapter that you call A Few Final Worries and Conclusions on Moral Responsibility. And what basically are you doing there in chapter 7? For one thing, I'm dealing with another argument that I didn't have another place for, and that's uh, a reformulation by Peter Van Inwagen of the consequence argument that this time tries to avoid using the principle of alternate possibility. Mm -hmm. So Van Inwagen realized, okay, that principle might be a bit controversial, which obviously is proven by the fact that I reject it. And so he's trying to reshape his uh, consequence argument in a direct argument that simply no longer presupposes the principle of alternate possibility. So it's called uh, very unoriginally, it's called the direct argument for incompatibilism. So that's where I deal with it. And once again, I try to uh, offer counter arguments as well. And uh, the, the final few worries that I take in this chapter is also the fact that I'm confessing that I don't know for a fact all of the conditions that are collectively sufficient in order to declare that a person in, is morally responsible. Because I've spent a lot of time in the rest of the uh, book to simply tell you, no, that's not necessary, that's not necessary, and that ain't not necessary either. So I'm calling out a lot of conditions as not necessary for moral responsibility. A natural question would be to say, okay, stop being a skeptic, tell us what does it take for a person to be morally responsible. And so what I do is I do confess that there's lots of difficulties in giving you the golden rule, the golden list of conditions, which if you have all of them, yeah, that's it, you're morally responsible. So I confess that and I show that it's not necessarily a bad thing, uh, that it's at least not worse than my opponents in this debate, because I do show that even on libertarian views, it's very difficult to say everything that uh, is required in order to be morally responsible. So it's a little bit of a modesty here and uh, a clarification of the fact that I'm not trying to give you a full model. Plenty of compatibilists have tried to do that and uh, some have been more successful than others, but I guess I'm just saying this is not my project here. Yeah. I mean, I see a lot of refuted theories in the compatibilist camp. At least that's how I've looked at it for a long time. They've been very creative in, in uh, coming back when a theory is refuted. They, they, they retool, you know, and uh, take exactly, a different approach. Exactly, but that's... Uh... 
that's a difficult exercise because they're trying to come up with a universal criterion and all it takes for that to be shown false is one silly counter example. And so there's a lot of work of patching a model that seemed to be just fine until there's one fancy counter example that comes their way. Mm -hmm. So I'm not engaging in that exercise myself. I have some ideas. I mean, I, I, I do try to stick my neck out a little bit about what that looks like when we're morally responsible. Mm -hmm. And I discuss a little bit of that. I, I have a part where I speak of one's... Um, acting on the basis of a God-given character and desires. Yes. But I don't try to flesh that out into a fully uh, sufficient condition for moral responsibility because I know better and then some clever Armenian will come with a situation where it's not met and yet we are morally responsible or worse, that it's met and we're not morally responsible and then my model has to be repaired. So I don't know how to fix it and give you the best model yet. Well, it shows some intellectual integrity that you're you're willing to admit which questions you can't answer, and yes, but I still want to answer these other ones. I mean, it's better than just faking it and you know trying to uh, <laughs> yes, pretend that right you've back. explained everything that anyone could want explained. Yes, I don't want to claim modesty for affirming that I'm not omniscient, but yes, I do affirm non-omniscient. When the Trinity's podcast returns, does Calvinism make God responsible for evil? This isn't exactly a lightning round, but you know, this isn't a lightning book. It's it's not a light read. Um, so the last chapters, there's three chapters in part two, which you call Calvinism and divine involvement in evil. And this is where you grab the bull by the horns. This is the thing that really, I think, drives a lot of Christian philosophers away from Calvinism. Just, is this going to make evil hopeless? Is this going to just hand the atheist uh, a killer objection to belief in God if we adopt a Calvinist view of divine providence and human freedom. So chapter eight is called Preliminaries on the Problem of Evil. The preliminaries I give here is to try to frame my discussion a little bit away from discussion of the actual problem of evil, because that's not the direct focus of my work. Obviously, it's relevant to how one deals with the problem of evil, but the problem of evil is really an argument from the atheist. The atheist is saying that there is evil or there is too much evil, therefore God cannot exist. And this is not really the claim that is being made here against the Calvinist view of free will. Rather, it's this idea that if God determines the outcome of our choices, then he's inappropriately involved in evil. So I try to um, explain the relationship between my question and the classic problem of evil. So I discuss things like the free will defense, uh, the difference between a defense and a theodicy. How does that affect the Calvinist? These are all the preliminaries I deal with before I actually open the question that is of interest here, and namely that is, is God inappropriately involved when he determines that a sinner like me will perform something evil? Chapter 9 is called The Half-Baked Argument and Three Recipes to Complete Its Baking. In this chapter, what I do is that I try to collect uh, the different ways in which uh, Armenians have typically complained about God's involvement in evil on Calvinism. 
many times it's not all that clear exactly what the charge uh, appears to be. So I try to parse their statements and categorize them uh, in different ways that one could complain about divine involvement in evil and determinism. And what I found is that there's really three basic ways in which people complain about this. There's one that I call the foggy recipe. There's one that I call the ambitious recipe, another one, the timid recipe. So these are different recipes to complete what I otherwise think is a half-baked argument. It's just a complaint that's voiced somehow, and it's not really developed into an argument. And I'm trying to finish the baking for the objector, but the only three recipes that work seem to me to have problems because the foggy is too foggy, the ambitious is too ambitious, and the timid is too timid. And the dough is basically the idea that God is the author of evil on Calvinism. That's right. Something like that. So the the phrase, as it is, as you've pronounced it, is what I've called the foggy one, because uh, to be the author of sin is it's a nice metaphor, but it doesn't tell us much about what is wrong with that. I think that the Calvinist is not even sure which premise to reject here. If we phrase this into an argument, it's a very simple one that says, if determinism is true, or if Calvinism is true, then God is the author of evil, but God is not the author of evil, therefore Calvinism is false. That's a logically valid argument, but the Calvinist is not even sure which premise he should refuse until we're told what exactly it means to be the author of evil. So uh, there's a very real sense in which I think all Christians should say that God stands behind evil. He's controlling it, and there's some really strong biblical teachings where God says, well, I create light, I create darkness, uh, uh, good and calamity, I'm the Lord who does all those things. Does disaster come into a city unless the Lord has done it? Those sorts of claims are, for the Christian at least, a necessity to say that God stands behind evil in some fashion. So then the question is, well, what fashion is that? And that question is kind of uh, splitting between two different uh, recipes. There's the ambitious recipe that says the problem in Calvinism is that God stands behind evil. The problem is that if you claim that, then in order to refute it, you need to say that God does not stand behind evil in any way. And that is too ambitious. It's self-refuting because it ends Mm -hmm. up being inconsistent with all Christian views, regardless of one's view of free will. Because even the most opposite view of Calvinism, which would be open theism, even open theists must in some fashion say that God stands behind evil, even if it's in a very remote fashion. And so that ambitious recipe doesn't work out because it's too ambitious. It's self-refuting. And so the um, objector to Calvinism must uh, go a bit deeper and tell us not just that God stands behind evil on Calvinism, it must complain about how he stands behind evil, and namely that's in a deterministic fashion. He stands behind evil in a way that he determines the outcome of evil choices. But then those sorts of claims, when we finally get into the business of telling us what is wrong, tend to be question-begging, because now the objector to Calvinism has to claim in premise two that God does not stand behind evil in a deterministic fashion. Right, so determinism must be false, but that's the Calvinist view. So it tends to be question-begging to simply say that God is not the author of sin in the sense that he doesn't determine sin. That's just a premise that the Calvinist will say, well, I don't grant that. And so these are the three broad ways in which I found the objection to be pressed, and I point out those main defects. But then in the next chapters, I try to actually interact with the specific articulations of them. I just thought that this nomenclature is helpful to categorize the objection. 
So chapter 10, in a sense, the argument on this topic continues. It's called The Specific Arguments from Evil Against Determinism. And you deal with, you know, objections that God is willing sin, the objection that the Calvinist is not entitled to say that God merely permits sin, the objection that you have God causing sin, and so on. A lot of interesting stuff there, a very dogged defense of the Calvinist point of view, and some interesting interaction with people, especially Hasker, Roger Olson, William Lane Craig, some interesting other Christian thinkers that you interact with there. Yeah, that's right. So I, I take all of those uh, specific uh, articulations and then many times I can point out, well, see, here's the uh, ambitious recipe or here is the timid recipe or here's the foggy recipe so that we can identify then what's the logical problem with the articulation of the argument. But many times I just need to simply engage with the claims on their face, not necessarily pointing out which recipe we are because it's not uncommon for objectors to kind of tread on both grounds. So they'll start with two timid claims, and then they will end up crossing over into making two ambitious that ends up being self-refuting. So I don't just put them in one box and then leave them there as allegedly refuted. I kind of engage all of the statements one by one, Mm -hmm. uh, which turns out to be somewhat of a debate format. But I think I take on some of the important voices and try to explain why they don't successfully refute Calvinism. Well, speaking of debate, I wanted to spend the rest of this episode raising a few complaints of my own. So, <laughs> ouch. Uh, <laughs> one concerns your use of begging the question. So, for people that aren't philosophers or trained in logic and argument, begging the question doesn't mean inviting the question. People often say that, like reporters will say, well, that begs the question. They mean it just invites the question. But when a philosopher or a lawyer or somebody says begging the question, they mean that you're assuming the very thing that you should be proving, or at least assuming more than you should, maybe assuming something that's closely related to the conclusion. There were times in the first oh, four chapters, coercion, manipulation, mental illness, pets and puppets, where I was saying, well, look, the thing that those scenarios have in common with a deterministic worldview is that the agents that are in that world, they lack any kind of two-way control at any point in their lives. But the idea of two-way control is something that you're not sympathetic to. And whenever somebody makes an argument that leans on intuitions about two-way control, like being able to control whether or not a choice is made or more broadly, being able to control what kind of people we turn out to be, that type of thing. Like, I mean, I think a naive principle of alternative possibilities is just obviously wrong. If it's saying that every time you make a free and responsible choice, you have to have been able to to make a different choice in those very circumstances, right? Think about the guy that gets drunk and he gets in a fight with his girlfriend and he punches her out. And then his defense, when you say, well, you shouldn't have punched her out, that was wrong. And his defense is, well, but you don't understand, I was really mad and really drunk at the time. And, uh, (laughs) you know, maybe when she yelled at him and he was really mad and drunk, he could not do otherwise than punch her because she was yelling right in his face. Suppose that's true, but that doesn't exonerate him because we think he made a bunch of choices going into the situation, you know. First of all, he got drunk and he knows that he gets punchy when he gets drunk. Second of all, he know, he knows this is careening towards violence and yet he, he doesn't walk away, you know. And so everybody blames him for this dastardly deed, even though at that moment he couldn't have done otherwise. Deep into the book, you do interact a little bit with people who have a more 
sophisticated view where time comes in. It's not that you have to be able to avoid that very choice, but it's that you had to have had some opportunities or at least one at some prior point. And of course, if determinism is true, that there is no point in your life at which anything is up to you in a two-way kind of sense of up to you. It's all one way, you know, it's all just the causes working out in a single direction. But what, what I'm really getting at is last week in the episode, you, we talked about some disagreements among Calvinists. And I think that these disagreements are actually explained by what I think is an important truth, which is that belief in libertarian free will is part of common sense. In other words, it's a natural, even a properly basic belief, a reasonable belief for all humans. And because it's part of common sense, then I think it's reasonable to assume it, even if someone's going to tell you that you're begging the question. I remember one time in grad school, I had a fellow grad student who told me, I can't remember what it was. I think it was that there is no mind independent realities or there's no objective truths or both of those things. And anytime I argued back against him, he just pointed out that I was begging the question. And I'm sure he's right that I was begging the question, but I still thought he was an idiot at the end of it. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, or another example would be um, if you read classical Buddhist literature about the no-self doctrine. I agree with Descartes, the great French philosopher, who made the point that if at a certain moment you are conscious, you at that moment know that you exist and are conscious. You're just directly aware that you are conscious. It's not consciousness in general flowing around that you're directly acquainted with. It's that you're directly aware of yourself being conscious. So at that moment, you know you exist and are the subject of consciousness. And the classical Buddhist just straightforwardly denies that. They have some arguments. They claim that they can just dissolve this idea of a substantial self that is real and that lasts through time. You know, but whatever they say when they're discussing the Dharma uh, and what they actually do, I mean, if you observe their life and their concerns, like they're very concerned about what happens after they die. They're very concerned about obtaining nirvana, you know, coming up with a better next birth and things like that. And well, those things look like they just presuppose the existence of a self. So they can't get away from this conviction that's built into human nature or denial of other minds would be another one that like, seems to me it's kind of built in. So if I'm right about that, then it's the kind of thing that you can bring to the reading of scripture, because since they're human beings, just like we are, what's common sense in the sense that I mean it, it's not culturally relative. It's just going to be something that humans at all times and places find sort of intuitive. It affects the way that you look at scriptures like this. Dr. Bignot, in your book, you quote Deuteronomy 30, a very famous passage where Moses is sort of giving a final challenge to Israel, and he says this, The command that I am giving you today is not too difficult or beyond your reach. It's not up in the sky. You do not have to ask who will go up and bring it down for us so that we can hear it and obey it nor is it on the other side of the ocean. You do not have to ask who will go across the ocean and bring it to us, so that we may hear it and obey it. No, it is here with you. You know it and can quote it. So now, obey it. Today I am giving you a choice between good and evil, between life 
and death. If you obey the commands of the Lord your God, which I give you today, if you love him, obey him, and keep all his laws, then you will prosper and become a nation of many people. The Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are about to occupy. But if you disobey and refuse to listen and are led away to worship other gods, you will be destroyed. I warn you here and now, you will not live long in the land across the Jordan that you are about to occupy. I am now giving you the choice between life and death, between God's blessing and God's curse. And I call heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Choose life, love the Lord your God, obey Him and be faithful to Him. And then you and your descendants will live long in the land that He promised to give your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So when I hear a passage like that, I just think the normal reader is going to presuppose that there are two outcomes that are possible for the nation. It's kind of a threat and also a promise. It's in your power to go this way or that way. And if you go that way, I'm going to get you. If you go this way, I'm going to bless you. But that looks like it presupposes the falsity of determinism, because if determinism is true at the moment that the prophet is speaking, I mean, it's all, so to speak, written. It's, it's just going to turn out one way. And in fact, there aren't multiple outcomes possible. Yeah, I think that's a common and frustrating limitation of arguments, right? You were discussing about this uh, idea of begging the question that uh, you can't really use an argument that's non-question begging in order to convince somebody that the outside world is real or that there is a mind-independent reality, that there's objective truth. All those sorts of things uh, you cannot demonstrate with an argument so that somebody who's playing with taking what you and I take the wrong view on those questions can still always say, well, look, you're begging the question, you're begging the question. So in a sense, it's a fair uh, demand to make of my own book to ask, look, you're pointing out a lot of places where anti-Calvinists are allegedly begging the question, but are you responsible, are you reasonable, or are you just being overtly septic in the same way that these, uh, these people are playing dumb here? Um, and I think it's a fair criticism. So one first thing I would say is that I'm dealing with the arguments and I'm trying to say where they've presupposed something that I think is false. And sometimes that's the best I can do to say, look, I look at your argument. Here's a premise. I don't think that one is true. If you don't convince me of this one, I don't need to adopt your conclusion. It's a bit frustrating that sometimes that's all we can do, but that's still the rule of the game, if you will. But uh, I try also to go a little bit beyond that. Obviously, at several places, I try to go, as we said, beyond mere skepticism, and I try to offer positive arguments of my own for why I reject some of those premises. But also, there's one piece that I've uh, added in my book that I think helps a little bit with those sorts of accusation, and it's trying to explain on this principle of alternate possibilities why is it that we felt so strongly initially that the claim was obvious, right? Because sometimes the libertarians mm -hmm. don't even try to argue for it. I mean, if you read Jerry Walls, he's presenting it as a properly basic belief, and he says you cannot even argue for it because anything else I say is going to be less obvious than that. Mm -hmm. So as a compatibilist who disagrees with this, obviously I first need to deal with the argument and say, well, okay, well, 
that's question begging. If I disagree and you say there's no argument, that there's not much for me to do here. But I do go a little bit beyond and I say this. Here is one plausible explanation for why the argument was convincing in the first place. And I think that does uh, carry a bit of my responsibility to be more than just a skeptic who's folding his arm and saying, hey, I don't want to hear about those premises you haven't proven. And I say, there is that big equivocation on the conditional and the categorical senses of ability. And since the conditional sense is necessary for moral responsibility, it's very easy for Calvinists and non-Calvinists alike to confuse those two senses of ability and see them as one single principle of alternate possibility that seems very convincing. But in fact, when you distinguish between the two, there's one that's compatible with determinism and the other one that isn't. So I do think yeah. and I claim now, obviously, I can't prove this, right? We're talking about intuitions here. But I do claim that much of our initial pull towards this idea that we need the ability to do otherwise is because we failed to distinguish those two categories and we sense the, the strongly true and plausible principle of alternate possibility with a conditional sense of ability. And that one I affirm, I, I stake my claim on it. Yes, it's true. It's necessary. But it doesn't follow that compatibilism is false. So right. I try to do that now, whether that convinces and that satisfies the objector who is going to still say that I'm too skeptical about those claims. It's it's really a matter of intuition, but I, I do think it helps. Yeah. So you're trying to, I mean, in a sense, explain away the intuition. You're trying to explain why people have that pull, but it's not accurate. Yeah. That's right. The ability to do otherwise in the merely conditional sense, I'm not sure ordinary people normally think about that until they're get to the point where they're defending compatibilism, but... Let me put it this way. There's a number of libertarians who press this as an argument against uh, determinism, against compatibilism, by giving stories that they think are very intuitive. And I agree that they're very intuitive, but in each case, they presuppose the, the conditional ability to otherwise. So let me give you a couple of brief examples. You have David Whitaker, who's giving the story of a birthday party that uh, some girl is failing to attend the birthday party of another because uh, her airline failed to bring her to her destination. And so he's saying, well, look, uh, she cannot be blamed by her friend for failing to attend the birthday party because she couldn't have attended it even if she wanted. And here you have a clear case where the ability in question is a conditional sense. She doesn't have the conditional ability to do otherwise because she could not have attended it even if she wanted to. And so he's taking this to be an argument in favor of incompatibilism, whereas he's, all he's established is the truth that it's necessary to have the conditional sense of ability. You have similar stories offered by David Kopp and Peter Van Inwagen. So I, I review those in the book. Mm -hmm. And in each case, I show, look, they're taking a case where somebody doesn't have the conditional ability to do otherwise, and they're not morally responsible. And this is supposed to convince us that the categorical ability to do otherwise is necessary. And I'm calling non sequitur. I'm saying it doesn't follow. I agree with the story, but it doesn't support the inc incompatibilist claim. Yeah. And I realize it might sound like a cheap argument or just a total lack of argument for me to say that libertarian free will is a point of common sense. But um, let, let me say a couple of scenarios to try to make that more plausible and see what you, how you would think about them in response. Sure. So... Sure. Um, I think we all make a distinction between merely regretting something in the past and then like really feeling guilty about it and kind of blaming ourselves. So if I fall off a roof and I hit the ground, 
I'm going to regret that I hit the ground, but I mean, given that I had already fallen off the roof, you know, there was, I didn't have the ability to fly. So there's no two way ability that I'm presupposing there when I just regret that I hit the ground. But um, say I, I have a really bad day at work and I come home and I kick the dog and I, <laughs> I do regret that the dog was kicked because he's a good dog and didn't deserve that. But I also just, I kind of wish I could have a do-over, even though I know that's impossible. I just am convinced that I could have avoided kicking the dog, even though I had that kind of bad day at work. Or think about looking at the future. People have made the argument that deliberation presupposes multiple available options, not just theoretical options. You know, if the past had been different, then this or that might happen. But when you're deliberating, you're presupposing that still, given what's happened so far, there's different ways that things could turn out. I mean, there's a fear of messing things up and losing real opportunities that doesn't make any sense on determinism, but which I think is part of common sense. So say uh, you're a single guy and you get invited to a singles meet and greet, okay? You overthink it. You're like, well, should I be Mr. Cool and not say very much? Or should I try to be the funny guy and charm the ladies? You decide to go with Mr. Cool. And all the ladies think you're an idiot. You know, no good dates, no connections come out of this. <laughs> and then afterwards, you're like, oh man, I messed that up. Looking forward to it, I mean, the reason you're thinking so hard about it is, is because you think it's in your power to either do well or to mess it up. But if determinism is true, you're going to either do well or mess it up or somewhere in between. Like, it's already settled. It doesn't depend on, in a sense, how hard you deliberate. One of those things is 100% likely, given what's happened. The other one's 0% likely. It's just you don't know which. So explain why these kind of common sense considerations don't move you from your uh, denial of libertarian free will. Yeah, I, I guess I, I still see that they really bank strongly on the intuitions we have that are mostly conditional about those things. So let's look at the person who is coming back uh, and kicking the dog. It seems to me that uh, it's obvious that he's, if he's blameworthy for kicking the dog, we're saying that he could have avoided kicking the dog if only he had wanted not to kick the dog. And so that principle of alternate possibility with a conditional sense is still right there staring us at the face, very true, and is probably lending some of its credibility to the categorical sense that we that you seem to be requiring here. You, you, know, you, you mentioned I could have avoided to kick the dog even though my day at work was bad. And I think that's uh, a fair point that is probably something I want to affirm. The work day being bad is not itself sufficient to kick the dog, which is why you blame yourself. You say, oh, man, that's not a sufficient reason. The, the bad day of work shouldn't have led me to do this. But it still remains that if you take into account the state of your heart at the moment where you kick the dog, that's where the Calvinist would say, look, Give the day of work, you know, if you had been a better person, just having a bad day at work would have meant that you didn't necessarily want to kick the dog, but you would have still needed to be a better person on that moment. And this is one common worry about libertarian views of free will. It's not one that I discuss in the book because that's not the burden I defend, but it's this idea of arbitrariness, right? So there mm -hmm. is no difference if you consider the two scenarios, one in which I kick the dog, the other one in which I refrain. I have the categorical ability to do one or the other while keeping in place everything about me exactly the way they were. 
which means that I don't need to be a better person on the moment. I just need to freely choose to not do it. And so that sounds to me counterintuitive. And the Calvinist simply says, look, there is a sense of ability that is necessary. And uh, that means that you could have done otherwise if you had wanted not to kick the dog. But he's going to maintain that for you to want not to kick the dog, you would have needed to have a different state of heart. And that obviously would have been, on, on his view, something that God can providentially grant more grace in order to do, do that. But I think that those intuitions are fairly well interpreted by those sorts of Calvinistic considerations. Yeah, I just think if I believe that, then guilt would make no sense. Because, again, I didn't, you know, miss an opportunity to treat my dog well. I mean, given what kind of person I was, I was just going to kick him. The point about, you know, I could have not kicked him if my desires had been different. Uh, I mean, that's a really strange thing to worry about or wonder about. It's a question about the mechanics of how my mind and body are put together. I don't think that's what people are thinking when they're feeling guilty about kicking their dog. I, I think they really thought it was in their power at some point to avoid it. Maybe not right at that second, but mm -hmm. if they had just had a beer before the dog greeted them or <laughs> gone for a walk or done something, they think at some point it was, it was avoidable. That's, I guess, precisely what you're denying, that it needn't have been actually avoidable given what had happened so far. What about the fear of messing up? I mean, thinking that how things are going to turn out for you really is hinging on this decision that you're going to make. That's kind of touching into what the what you mentioned, that there's this uh, idea that deliberation requires available options. It's not immediately relevant to my book's um, burden because it doesn't deal directly with moral responsibility, but it is an argument in favor of indeterminism. This is the idea, well, look, we have this idea of deliberation, we deliberate, that seems to presuppose a categorical ability to pick one or the other of the two options we're deliberating about, so does it not require indeterminism? And so it's not directly the burden of my book, but it's, since it's uh, related and it has this exact same feature of this idea of a categorical ability to do otherwise, I do treat it in there and I take for that a formulation by Peter Van Inwagen. And what I show is that in each case, again, what matters is that we, be, we have the ability to pick one or the other provided that we choose it. And I, I quote John Martin Fisher who analyzes it like this. He says, uh, I deliberate about going to the movies or going to the library because I strongly believe that I could go to the one or go to the other if only I chose to go to one or the other. And he says on the opposite end, I don't deliberate about jumping to the moon because at least in part, I know that I could not jump to the moon, to the moon even if I wanted to. And so it seems like even on deliberation, it's best understood to say that you require a conditional ability to do otherwise, and at least it's not been shown that you need a categorical ability to do otherwise. Well, again, we might differ as to how uh, much mileage are into intuitions are giving us, but it seems to me I get a lot of mileage out of unpacking claims on deliberation simply by saying I could choose A if I wanted to, or I could choose B if I wanted to. Therefore, I really have a genuine choice. And that it's meaningful for me to deliberate about this because I have that kind of conditional ability. It would not be meaningful to deliberate if no matter what I chose, the outcome would be the same. And that's sure enough, I agree that would be meaningless to deliberate. But as long as I have even the mild conditional ability to pick one or the other, it makes sense for me to make up my mind and deliberate and make a choice. Mm -hmm. 
even though from a Calvinist point of view, f within God's decree, it was all played out in advance. That is, for, uh, that is clearly a consequence of my theological view on Calvinism. But as far as the activity of deliberating, it seems to me all we need, obviously, is a conditional sense of ability. When the Trinity's podcast returns, I raise an objection based on the work of Christian philosopher William Hasker. to raise another kind of objection, and this has to do with your discussion in the book of what William Hasker calls a transfer of responsibility principle. And rather than reading through his big, long principle, let me just put it in terms of a scenario that I'm going to come up with. So, and it, it maybe it's difficult to imagine this, but suppose that I have a man and I actually have the right to either let him live or die. For some reason, I have this right over him. Can you grant me that just for my example? That is granted, but I reserve myself the right to remove that that right at the end of this podcast. <laughs> okay, sure. We think that you might have this kind of right with, with regard to a pet, for instance, or a wild animal that's on your property or something. But anyway, suppose there's a man that I have, I have rights of life or death over, and, and suppose he's, he's pretty much a good man. Um, he's full grown, normal, and no violent tendencies. But what I do with this man is I force him to drink five energy drinks in a row and listen to a bunch of rap music, really bad rap music, I should say. And uh, then I go in there and slap him around and he's just mad as an angry hornet right now. And then I quickly put him in a room with a baby and he kills the baby. The baby's cry makes him so enraged that he just, he kills the baby. I mean, it would seem obvious in a case like this that I am to blame for the baby's death and not the man because, you know, I brought it about deliberately and knowingly and it wasn't him, you know, acting on some character for which he was responsible. I mean, in a sense, I gave him bad character in that moment. I gave him bad inclinations, even though I, in my example, I said he was generally a good guy, but well, we could change the example. I could say, well, maybe he's not a good guy. Maybe I made him bad somehow. And then I, I threw him into that situation and so would you grant that in that situation that I would be to blame for the baby's death and not the guy? Yeah, I don't know that I would say and not the guy, but uh, at least that you would be partially blameworthy for it is probably the case in that situation. Yes. And so that's probably where Hasker is coming in to complain about the lack of relevant difference between this and Calvinism, where God is the one determining us to do evil. Is that right. where you're headed with that? Yeah, yeah, because he gives us our character and our opportunities and sovereignly determines the situations that we're in and so on. And so, you know, if somebody comes out having a career as a serial killer or something, this relates to the charge that doesn't Calvinism make God a sinner, essentially, that the blame now goes to him which of course would be a blasphemous and unacceptable consequence of the theory, we'd have to then reject the theory. How is it that you respond to a case like this? 
Yeah, so the case is really presenting itself once again as a claim that there is something analogous to, deter to divine determinism, where we have a situation where it seems like we want to say, look, the one who's controlling the other one is actually blameworthy, leaving aside the question of whether or not the person that is being controlled can also bear some of that blame. Let's leave that aside. Here, we're really talking about divine involvement in evil. So that's, I think, your point. I'm controlling the guy. It seems like I should be blamed for what I've brought about here. So the, the question is, if that's granted, what's the difference between that and when God determines that we are going to ultimately sin? And this is really bringing us back to one argument in the first part of the book that I had discussed, whether or not uh, determinism was analogous to manipulation. In the first part of the book, I was discussing it about whether that excludes our moral responsibility. But here in that part of the book, now we're asking, well, doesn't that mean that manipulating somebody to make them do something evil is actually blameworthy? Is that a mm -hmm. wrong thing for God to do? You might even say in that instance that I only permitted him to kill the baby, even though I ginned him up to be violent. I mean, I just opened the door and stood back. And yeah, that's right. So that's why I don't, uh, I don't use permission language uh, to exonerate God. Uh, that's a common move in reformed circles, but I don't do that. My discussion of permission language is purely is it meaningful to say that God permits what he has ultimately decreed or determined? And so I offer a nice framework to explain why that's actually meaningful, but I don't use that to say, well, look, he's only permitted it, therefore he's not blameworthy. Mm -hmm. I think he's not blameworthy, but I don't think it's because he just permitted it. So really, I'm still stuck on that, uh, on that situation where I still have to say, well, what's the difference here? And uh, what I've done uh, in the first part of the book uh, is to try to offer a criterion one that distinguishes between the cases where the manipulation is obviously, one, excluding moral responsibility, and two, entailing that the, the manipulator is the one to blame, and on the other side, uh, cases where God is determining what we do, and that happens to be evil. And it's... Uh, that condition that I suggest is uh, is one that I had to think long and hard because it's, I think, one of the most, um, I mean, it, it is one of the most convincing arguments in that family of arguments by analogy because coercion was too easy to dismiss. There's plenty of things that are very different uh, about a regular case of human being determined, very different from coercion. Same thing for yeah. pets, mm -hmm. puppets. So those, yeah. you can look at the situation and say, look, that's easy. There, This is happening here and that clearly Really, uh, removes more responsibility and it's not happening in the case of God determining humans so that's probably what's relevant here for manipulation you have a really difficult case and I think I've boiled it down to being look it seems to me the main relevant difference is who do, who's doing the controlling namely God so it's not uh, so I fully accept that this uh, criterion is going to be less compelling to the objector to Calvinism but I think it seems to me that's a relevant difference when you compare a human manipulator as opposed to God who is the creator and ruler of the universe, that I think he has the authority, he has the prerogative, and he has the uh, capacity to bring about everything that happens in ways that don't involve him in righteously for a number of reasons. Ultimately, I'm saying, well, the relevant difference is that in one case, it's a man doing it, in the other one, it's God. That's one distinction, but there's a couple of things about God that I think make it permissible and make it different. For one, God is omniscient and he knows all of the morally sufficient reasons why it might be a good thing to bring about this evil. 
So obviously, as Christians, we are all answering the problem of evil in that fashion. We're saying God permits evil because he has morally sufficient reasons. And even if we don't know what those reasons are, then that doesn't mean there are no such reasons. In the case of determination of evil, God brings about evil because he's got good purposes and his being omniscient means that he actually knows everything that's good about this coming about. In the case of a human manipulator, even if he does this because he's got, let's say, a great purpose behind this, you know, I don't know what we can come up with in your situation that would actually be a good outcome of this uh, choice. Yeah. But mm -hmm. if, even if humans uh, bring about things with a view towards what is good, that's still not acceptable acceptable because we would accuse them ironically of playing God. We were saying, well, no, even if you have a good reason, that's not for you to bring this about because you're now playing God. So this interesting phrase, I think, to me points to the fact that God is in full control and it's okay for him to do some things that are not okay for us to do, even if it looks really analogous. So that's where I uh, stake my claim. Someone might worry that it's special pleading, you know, that, well, you're just saying, well, but it's different in the case of God. I think there's a mystery appeal here that you're making that, well, we can't rule out that God has some incredibly wonderful purpose that requires all of this and justifies all of this. I mean, I guess I, sh I should end my example by uh, after the guy kills the baby, I come in and beat him up, you know, punish him or something, <laughs> throw him in jail for the rest of his life or something like that. I'm blaming him, you know. Yeah, so that now you've painted the uh, the wonderfully, absolutely horrible picture to uh, to uh, yeah. <laughs> fully incriminate my theological view. Uh, <laughs> but like in my case, you wouldn't be skeptical about me, right? You wouldn't say, "Well, I don't know that Dale's pretty smart. Maybe Dale actually knows about a sufficient good that requires him to do what I just described." And so I'm not going to say that what he did was wrong. You wouldn't yeah. do that for me, right? No, that's right. And I think that's that's pointing out to those uh, relevant differences between human beings and God. I think that God being omniscient and being allegedly all good and righteous, we have reasons to think that he's in a different position than you are there. Now, obviously, all Christians will want to say you know, that this appeal to mystery is really skeptical theism. Right? It's simply to say that there are morally sufficient reasons for why God permits evil, right? Let's phrase it in mildest possible terms here. I'm not talking about determining that this happened, but purely permitting it, God must have some good reasons. So if we all agree on that, then we can grant that to the Calvinist to say, well, look, he's bringing about something and we're saying there must be some good behind it. God is in a very different position than human manipulators in deciding that he's going to bring this about. One is the creator of the human being in question. He's the sovereign ruler of the universe, and he knows full well all of the good reasons that there might be behind this. So he's only bringing this about with good and righteous outcomes in mind, and it seems to be to be uh, relevantly different from manipulation. Now, I understand if it doesn't cut it for the libertarian who says, no, there's still something wrong in there. Well, it doesn't sound like we are able to land an argument that's not going to be able to. Because at some point, we are trying to say, here's something that's true of man, and it should also be true of God. But there's lots of differences between man and God. So I think that the Calvinist is not in too bad a shape to explain that there are relevant differences here. But you're doing a good job at pressing me really hard on this one. I'm a little bit worried that if we make such a commitment as you're describing, we'll be unable to object to anything on moral grounds that's assigned to God. I'm thinking of uh, somewhere in Hindu tradition, one of the deities, I believe it's Brahma, but I'm not sure. Uh, but there's a traditional story where one of the deities takes bodily form and he's lusting after this guru's wife. 
and he takes bodily form and he imitates the guru and he goes in and he, and he sleeps with the wife. So basically he commits rape because he's, he's uh, deceiving her. And it looks like you want to say, well, look, God, God, uh, or even just a good being in general, isn't going to commit what's basically a rape. But if we're going to be, you know, say God, who knows God's ways? I mean, it looks like we just couldn't, if we had any objection to that, it would just be on the basis of the source. Like it doesn't come from a prophet or from the Bible or the apostles, like the content of it wouldn't come into our objection, right? Yeah, well, it, it sounds to me like this is sliding slightly into the ambitious recipe that I mentioned earlier. It sounds like uh, the claim here, I mean, it has force, right? I mean, there's some some pull behind the, the, the objection, but it sounds to me it's not specifically against Calvinism at this point. It really lends against any sort of claims by the skeptical theist answering the problem of evil. You know, take somebody who affirms libertarian free will, but still says that God permitted the Holocaust. We could say, well, okay, maybe, maybe some how God has a good reason for that, but why does he go around permitting this sorts of nasty stuff when he could just decide to kill a bunch of Nazis and then the war being over with it? I think that on some level, the Christian has to say, look, God has morally sufficient reasons behind this stuff. And even if I don't know those reasons, I just trust that he does have them. It counts against, in some level, I mean, the argument has some force, but I don't think that it lands successfully because we can quite plausibly say, even if I don't know those reasons, I trust that they are there. Yeah, well, I do think skeptical theism is too skeptical, but that's another conversation. Um, <laughs> All right, so that's a different way of dis discussing the problem of evil with the atheist now. But you, you see how very quickly some of those worries can also land on the Arminian who affirms liberty and free yeah. will, but mm -hmm. but who doesn't want to say that his God is completely helpless in facing all of that stuff. You know, yes. you take a Greg Boyd uh, tells very gripping stories of uh, kidnapping and little girls being abused over years and tries to uh, argue against Calvinism on that basis to say, look, how come a God would determine this to happen? You do have to turn around and say, look, okay, let's assume that your open theism is true. Your God is still permitting this to happen. He, maybe he cannot bring about that the rapists freely refrain but he could just strike down the rapist. So he doesn't. So that means that both you and I are committed to saying that somehow God has morally sufficient reasons to prefer the scenario in which all this evil takes place. And it is frightening, but it is, I think, the reasonable Christian response to say evil happens. God must have good reasons behind it. And even if I don't know those reasons, it seems to me like they must be there. Yeah. And I, I like this in the book. You're very clear that if someone's objecting to Calvinism, you don't want to explode yourself with your own hand grenade. That's right. That's not that's not a pleasant feeling. I agree that God's rights should far outstrip our rights. So I don't want to say that just because something is an act that we would have no right to do, therefore God has no right to do it. I think that makes sense. But I'm still a little bit worried that we're throwing the doors open. I mean, someone may have a dream or a vision and uh, say it involves God doing something really horrible. And it seems like we want to say in some cases, well, that's just not, that can't be God. Come on. Like that. <laughs> so we, shouldn't we reserve at least, at least that move in principle? I don't know. Yeah, maybe we should. I'm not sure what to say. It seems like there, there might be a differing uh, 
intuitions. And then there's obviously the issue of uh, scripture, right? Well, there are some things in the Bible that seem to assign to God some things that are pretty tough to swallow. Um, what do we make with those? And do they educate our intuitions about what God is going to do? Or do we reject the inerrancy of scripture? These are all you know, tough questions to explore. Yeah. I guess it's really disappointing that I haven't succeeded in making you a Calvinist in two hours of podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a big change. But yeah, I mean, to end on a note of agreement, I think we are agreeing that there are some actions, or at least we can't rule out that there are some actions that are just intrinsically wrong. Like, no matter who does them, no matter how they're done, no matter when they're done, just if we're talking about a certain type of action that's highly specified, it's going to be kind of wrong by definition. Yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah, I think we can agree on that. Yeah. Some would deny that because they think it all depends on just God's free choices. But I guess we're agreeing on that. And your position is more like, yeah, there might be actions like that, but you have yeah. to be really, really careful jumping to that conclusion because things that look like they're intrinsically wrong actually could have some wonderful justifying reason. Yeah, so some of that uh, we might be mistaken, but I think we, you and I agree that there are such things that it's absolutely impossible for God to perform. And obviously I'm going to be very snarkily retorting that, uh, by the way, God is still praiseworthy for not doing them, which proves that he doesn't need to have the ability to do otherwise. <laughs> The biggest disagreement that we're going to have about evil is, or one of the biggest disagreements is going to be that you're going to insist that there has to be an actual purpose in God's plan for every single case of evil. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Some good that really does require exactly that evil then and there in that circumstance. And I'm going to say that some of the evils are pointless. He's not tightly controlling things. And so he's of his own free choice. He's opened the door to there being pointless evils. Yeah, I think that's right. And that's, uh, I mean, and to your credit, not every libertarian is uh, happy to concede that there's this pointless evil. I think that John Sanders is uh, is pressing for it. Uh, he's saying, no, there's some things that are purposeless evil. When views uh, weakness is another view strength, it seems to me that it's a good thing for Calvinists to be able to say, look, even when I suffer, even when there's evil in my life, I can trust that God has good purposes behind it. And it has brought some comfort in, uh, in the face of suffering. But uh, I would also qualify the issue of pointless evil by saying, even on your view, Dale, I don't think it's really pointless. I think that there is one point, namely to preserve the existence of libertarian free will and so that it's valuing free will more than just controlling and avoiding that evil. So that I think it's fair to say you still have a purpose. It's just that the only purpose on that instance is to preserve libertarian free will, wouldn't you yeah. say? Well, yeah, they're going to be general purposes, though. They're not going to be goods that That's require right. precisely that evil then and there. That's there'll right. be general reasons why that kind of evil is permitted, but... Yeah, um, I think that's correct. Look at us agreeing. Yeah, so if your cat gets smashed by the garage door coming down on it, I say maybe maybe God makes a world in which we can be careless, and sometimes things get smashed. The Calvinist will say, no, there was some... In some way, that cat getting smashed by the garage door makes the whole of the cosmos better than it would have been if that cat hadn't got smashed, Right. Right, but now you, you'd still want to be careful to make sure you sneak in some free will in, incident in the whole uh, situation, because if we are just talking about the garage door falling down, then arguably that's deterministic and uh, there should be a purpose. Yeah, I don't think theodicy is only about free will. I think exactly, you have to, exactly. there has to be regularity and laws of nature and things like this that, that are also general policies yeah. that will yeah. make that sort of thing 
Yeah, because that's a likely. that is a mistake. That is a mistake I've seen in anti-Calvinist literature. You find Jerry Walls who says, "Look, Calvinism cannot be right. Uh, if you take the instance of a car that breaks down because the, there's a there's a car accident and all this evil and pain and suffering by people in the car who get injured for life because the brakes have ceased to function." Well, there is no free will involved in the brakes ceasing to function here. So that basically is refuting his own view of God as much as the Calvinist view. And that I, I don't think is a, a good idea to make for refuting Calvinism. Yeah, it's a definite mistake for the libertarian or for any Christian to think that all a theodicy requires is appeal to free will. Exactly. Just, you make this point forcefully about natural evils in one of your chapters, don't you? Yes, I do. And I think that's uh, the thoughtful libertarians remark that and they, they could go in beyond say, uh, look, even natural evil doesn't, well, and the, it, it's a complex question because there's also the natural evil that God can bring about in order to influence some freely made choices. But that's another mm -hmm. story. But bottom line is, yes, uh, Jesus can calm the sea and the wind. And so God is in control of the elements. And if something bad happens in that fashion, it's not uh, easily blamed on human free will. And so that's right. uh, it, it, free will in the libertarian framework can do some of the heavy lifting for a theodicy, but it surely cannot do everything. Right. Dr. Bino, thanks for talking with us. Thank you very much, Dale. It was so much fun. week's thinking music has been the track Rubik's Cube by Jason Shaw, also known as Audionautics. As always, there's a link on the blog post for this episode where you can listen to or download that entire track. If you love the Trinity's podcast, please share this episode on social media like Twitter or Facebook. And help other people to find the podcast by giving us an honest rating and review in the iTunes store for your country. You can also support the Trinity's podcast by giving a certain donation per episode. If you're interested in that, please visit patreon.com slash trinities. Finally, let us know what you think. Give us a comment on the blog post for this episode. Or join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash trinities. The Trinity's podcast is supported by and made for thinking believers like you. Thanks for your support, prayers, and encouragement. Thanks for listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.